0: We have a moment of candor right now. I got to be honest. When I drove to campus yesterday for the services or when I drove to campus today, I can't honestly say I jumped in the car and thought, I can't wait to get there and bring this message because this is not one of the most fun messages I'll ever bring. We're in a seven-week series right now called The Appointment, and we're talking about appointments that Jesus had with people, and all, through, all throughout the series, we're saying three things about these people they life put them there jesus met them and their lives were never the same again and 6 times out of the 7 it's a good it's a good outcome uh, when they met jesus their lives were radically altered and it was good but today we're going to talk about a guy who had an appointment with jesus and he didn't go that way he didn't go away that was good he went the other way. He went a way that was bad. And so it's not something that I'm going to have a lot of fun talking about, but I think it's important for us to have a talk about this person and his appointment with Jesus so that we'll understand that not everybody who comes into contact with the good news of Jesus takes that and goes in the right direction. Uh, we're going to call today's talk the poser, And this happens late in Jesus' life. And probably we could say this happens, this story plays out in the last week or so of Jesus' life. By this point, his enemies, and we've discussed them the last couple of weeks, his enemies, the religious and political elite, have decided they want to do away with Jesus. They want to kill him. And I'm always amazed at that, because you think about this, this, this really occurs after the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus stops into the town of Bethany. A man named Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. He's lying out in the seminary, cemetery. I don't know why that was a faux pas. Uh, <laughs> he's out in the cemetery, and Jesus stops by his tomb and calls his name. And after being dead four days, Lazarus walks out, and everybody is excited except the religious elite. And they decide now they want to kill Jesus, and this is what I find Sort of humorous. If you have sort of a, a far side mentality, then you're probably like me and you'll find this humorous too. They wanted to kill Lazarus. Poor Lazarus. He was dead, he got raised back to life. Now they want to kill him again. But I always wonder about that. Why would you want to why would you want somebody like Jesus to be dead? Because if you had somebody in your town, even if you weren't a God follower, my goodness, even if you're rock rib nontheist, if there was a guy in your town and he could heal sick people, you know, people who are paralyzed get up and walk, people who are blind become sighted. You know, people who are fatally ill become well. People who are dead, he stops funeral processions and sends the procession home in joy. If you had somebody who could take a sack lunch and feed 20,000 people, why would you want somebody like that dead? I mean, even if I didn't even believe in God, I would love to have somebody like that in my town. But I will tell you one thing about 21st century America that gives me a clue why that could happen. I guess it would just depend on how politically incorrect the person was. And Jesus, he was really politically incorrect. And so the powers that were decided that they wanted him dead. You guys know, of course, that there was no television those days. There were no film crews filming Jesus and his sermons. So these elite didn't know exactly what he looked like. A lot of them, they, they weren't sure they could pick him out of a crowd. And if they were going to arrest him, they wanted to make sure it was clean, quick, decisive, and that they had the, had the right guy. And they were concerned about how they were going to pull off the arrest. When off the street, in walks their solution. And how perfectly delicious. One of Jesus' twelve, one of his own, walks in and offers to sell Jesus out. He says to Jesus' enemies, I will turn him over to you. I will show you who he is. I will identify him. How much will you pay me if I do this thing? For a moment or two, I'd like to just read you some scriptures that show how the story unfolds. I'd like to take you first to Matthew 26:14, where the Bible says one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Just so you'll know, this is walking around money. This is pocket change. This is cab fare. He didn't get a lot for Jesus. 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And then in Mark 14, the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them, the enemies of Jesus. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. How cold is Judas giving instructions to Jesus' enemies about how they should take him away? And Judas has said... The way you will know who he is, I will kiss him on the cheek. That is a greeting of two people who are good friends. Judas has said, I will sell him out and I will do it with a kiss. And then Judas wants them to know where they can find Jesus. He wants to get them into the right area. In John 18, too, Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. I want to just stop for a moment and I want to talk a little bit. See, we're going to learn something real quick about posers. This place that Jesus often returned to was a place of prayer. It was a place of worship. It was a place where Jesus and his disciples experienced God. Judas knew the place. He had been there many times. But although he was in the place, he didn't encounter God. And all over America today, in thousands of churches, there will be people who know the place. They will be there for the songs. They will be there for the talk. They may even be there for the rituals. They know the place, but they don't encounter God. They're just posing. Now, that's not the New Spring thing, but it could be that someone is like that here today, And, and you're in the place. If somebody would say, where's the place where New Spring gathers for worship, you would know the place. You could even bring somebody to the place. But although you know the place, you haven't met the person. And I just wonder, how many prayer meetings did Judas attend? How many many times did Jesus and his disciples sing worship? And Judas was there, and he sang the words. But although he was in the place, he didn't know God. Well, anyway, you can find out how Jesus' enemies reacted in Luke 22, verse 5, when it says they were delighted and agreed to give him money. And it went down just like that. In some of the talks that we've had so far, we've imagined what the scenes must have looked like. I always see this scene in my head. Here's Jesus. It's probably midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning. Jesus is there with 11 sleepy disciples. And on the other side, here comes an army, actually several armies, several police forces. And this army is coming out to arrest Jesus. And of all things, the army is being led by one of Jesus' 12 disciples. I always like to try to get into the head of people who were there at the time. And I wonder about the disciples and what they thought when they saw this army coming and Judas leading the army. I wonder if they thought, hey, look at Judas. Look at what he pulled off. Maybe he found some way to make peace with Jesus' enemies. And especially when Judas slipped up and kissed Jesus on the cheek, they thought, wow, how cool is Judas? But if they thought that, it only lasted for seconds because seconds later, Jesus was bound with rope and he was led off to be brutally crucified. It's the ugliest story in your Bible. If you're holding a Bible in your lap or if you have an electronic device that you're looking at scripture on, it's the ugliest story in your Bible. A betrayer, a poser. You know, when we have something bad happen where someone does awful things, such as what happened at Fort Hood this week, Or we have a serial killer or somebody who brutalizes someone else. We want to get into their background and want to find out what was it that caused them to go off the rails. Maybe they had a bad situation. Maybe they had some sort of disadvantaged life. And so when you look at a guy like Judas who could follow Jesus for three and a half years and then turn around and sell him for walking around money, we want to know, well, did Judas have some kind of bad thing in his background? Maybe among the 12 disciples he was the most disadvantaged. I want to give you seven interesting facts about Judas real fast, because these facts will not only help you understand Judas, they will help us deal with a question. Because the question I think people have is, what does it take to have a relationship with God? And and the thing that we're going to see, and I'm giving it away now, but the thing that we're going to see is Judas had just about everything anyone would expect you would need to have to have a relationship with God if religion was the way to God. Well, let's just start unpacking this. I'm always nervous, by the way, when a minister has seven points, because I'm wondering what time will we get out of here, but these will go real fast, okay? Let's just start with this one. Judas, it looks like, had a good upbringing. Did you know that among the 12 disciples, Judas was the only one to come from Judea? Judea was like the epicenter of where God was at work in the Jewish world. I mean, it was like where the best synagogues were and the best teaching. I mean, it was like if if you were a spiritual leader, you would come from Judea. All the other 11 disciples came from Galilee. That was like the wrong side of the spiritual tracks. So Judas was the only one to come from Judea. And his parents had given him a name that was the name of the leader of the Messianic tribe, the tribe that the Messiah would come from. His name meant praise God. I think his parents had great expectations for him, that he would grow up to be a man whose life was filled with God's praise. He probably grew up in the best synagogues, memorizing verses, saying prayers. I often wonder how the other disciples looked at Judas. You know, there's, Matthew, you know, there's uh, Peter, James, and Andrew, and John. They were all rough-hewn fishermen. You know, they grew up on the docks. They grew up listening you know, to the worst kind of language and exposed to the rougher elements of life. And I wonder if Peter didn't look over at Judas and think, wow, if I could have just grown up like Judas over there. And then there's Simon the Zealot. He was one of the 12. He was a terrorist before he got saved. He was a bomb maker, if we put him in modern terms. I mean, he was a radical... And he experienced Jesus. And I don't know how old Simon was. He was probably in his 20s, 30s, maybe older than that. And there's Simon looking over at Judas thinking, you know, if I could have grown up like Judas, I wouldn't have grown up hanging with wrong kind of people, you know, that, that read the wrong kind of magazines and, and thought about making weapons and killing people. If I could have grown up like Judas, I'd have been so much better off. And there's Matthew, the tax collector. Oh, there's no worse scum than tax collectors. Tax collector, that's worse than a prostitute. That's worse than a thief. And that's just how they, I'm not, if you're you're for the IRS, honestly, I'm not talking about you. Um, (laughs) Really. Um, Back in the day, they were, I've told you this before, no self-respecting Jewish person would collect taxes from other Jews. Rome had to go out and get the worst kind of people to do it, and they were thieves. And here's Matthew collecting taxes, and Jesus comes along and, And he calls Matthew, and I just think about Matthew looking at Judas thinking, if I could have just grown up like Judas, if I could have grown up, allow the anachronism, please. If I could have grown up in church, if I could have grown up going to vacation Bible school, if I could have grown up in Sunday school like Judas. Well, could I just say to you, it's a good thing to have parents who point us toward God. And if you're like me and you got to grow up in church, a lot of you didn't get to. It's a good thing. But could I tell you something? For those of us who grew up in church, and I don't have to tell you this, one of the things that you can learn in having a good upbringing or growing up in church is you can learn how to pose. Because you know the facts. You know the stories of the Bible. You taught memory verses. You can beat all your friends at Bible Trivia. You've heard lots of sermons. I mean, you, you, you have it. It's part, of your, it's part of your thinking. It's part of your jargon. But in the process of time, it is possible to, baby, to just have the jargon but not have the truth in your life. And I guess that's what happened with Judas. Well, the second thing I think about Judas was he was baptized. All the disciples were baptized by John the Baptist. And that's pretty, I guess that's pretty impressive. From time to time, I've heard people say, Mark baptized me. Well, I hope you're not counting on that to get you into heaven. But, but these guys were baptized by John the Baptist. And let me just talk for a few moments about baptism. Baptism is a wonderful thing. And if you haven't had that experience in your life, I would, I would encourage you to think about it. In fact, you could take the talk to us card and check the box that says, I'm interested in baptism. But what you need to understand about baptism is that baptism doesn't start anything spiritually, baptism is a way of communicating to everybody that you have already placed faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody in the Bible was ever baptized before their salvation experience. You know, from time to time, I I think about the things that religion screws up. And prime among that list has has got to be salvation and baptism. Because you give give religion 2,000 years and it can really mess something up. And baptism is all over the page. Just read the Bible and you'll discover that everyone in the Bible experienced Christ, invited Christ into his or her life, and then after that they were baptized. Baptism is a testimony of what has already happened. If you were in a court case in Sedgwick County or one of the other counties around here and you were called to give testimony and, and you were asked by the attorney about some event and you started recounting an event... And the lawyer asks you, well, when did this take place? And you say, well, it hasn't taken place yet. It's going to take place next week. And the lawyer said, I'm sorry, you can't give a judgment. Tell you. you can't give testimony that something hasn't happened yet. And for a person to be baptized and not yet have a relationship with Christ through salvation, that would be giving testimony that something hasn't happened yet. I have a little personal story about that in my own life. When I was five years old, my mom and dad were concerned about me and I was not the most spiritual child in the world hate to tell you that but I was I can still remember the night I was playing with plastic figures in the floor of the living room my dad said Mark I'd like to talk to you about accepting Jesus and so I stopped what I was doing and listened to my dad I guess I was somewhat sincere but to be honest between you and me those of you on the internet and the television cameras just keeping it honest among ourselves I wanted to get back to playing so I was ready to pray anything And so I prayed a prayer. And this was back in the day when you made a decision in church. You walked forward in church. The next day was Sunday. I walked forward. My dad was the minister. I met my dad at the front. I made a profession of faith on that very day. They took me into the baptistry. My dad baptized me. And I, I went down a wet center and came up, I mean a dry center and came up a wet center, I guess you could say. But about three years later, I really did embrace the gospel. I understood what it meant to accept Christ. But now I've got a problem on my hands. My baptism is on the wrong side of my salvation. My baptism doesn't mean anything. And so I'm thinking about that. I need to deal with that. But the only problem is, I'm a pastor's kid, and everybody thinks, you know, I'm okay. I'm ashamed to say six years passed. When I was 14, and I don't mean that God talked to me out loud, but it was just God made a message to me that was very clear. God was basically saying, we're not going any further than your Christian walk Till you deal with this. And I still remember so well that Sunday when my dad was speaking and I was in the back seat of the church. It was not a big building like this. It was a small building. And all of us really tough guys who were teenagers, we sat in the very back row and acted like we weren't interested. But I was listening to the message. And I remember when the invitation was given, I would put one foot in the aisle and then I'd put it back. It was like the original Texas two-step. And and, and I still remember that moment when I stepped out of the aisle and I went forward. And I'm going to tell you something. One of the greatest times of peace I've ever had in my life was that day when I settled that. Now, let me just tell you something. Had I died six years before that, I'd have gone to heaven. If I'd have died three years before that, I'd have gone to heaven. I'd accepted Christ, but I hadn't gone public with my faith yet. My baptism was on the wrong side of my salvation. And if, you, if that's something you need to rectify, then get information about baptism and take that step. But see, Judas' issue was his baptism was not just on the wrong side of his salvation, there was no salvation. His baptism gave testimony to something that hadn't happened. I'm always talking about baptism being like a wedding ring. It doesn't make you marry, but it becomes a symbol of your marriage. It would be like somebody who wasn't married wearing a wedding ring. And that was Judas. How about number three? He spent three and a half years with Jesus. From time to time, I've talked to people and I've asked them, are you sure you're going to heaven? And, and they will tell me, well, I've, I've, you know, they'll tell me, well, I've been to the, I was a member of this church and, and I sat under the ministry of this great preacher and I heard him preach a thousand messages. Or I've, I've seen these extreme, people will tell me, you know, I went to sleep one night and I had this dream and in my dream there was Jesus, so I'm okay. Well, guys, let me tell you, if listening to sermons would do it, if having spiritual experiences would do it, if hanging out with other Christians would do it, Judas is great because he heard every sermon. He didn't just hear me or some other preacher. He heard Jesus. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, Judas was there. When Jesus preached all of the discourse, Judas was there. Judas heard all these incredible messages that Jesus preached. And beyond that, he saw extraordinary things. You think you've had spiritual experiences? Man, Judas saw... Blind people walk. He saw blind people become sighted. He saw dead people come back to life. For three and a half years, he hung with Jesus. Those of you who love him, what would you pay to spend one day with Jesus? Well, I think I would. I would liquidate everything I've got to have one day with Jesus. And yet, Jesus, Judas had three and a half years. Well, let me give you number four. He preached. Did you know that Judas preached? For all you aging baby boomers whose hearing is starting to fade, I didn't say Judas Priest. I said Judas Preached. (laughs) In Mark 3, verse 14, he, Jesus, appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. He sent the 12, count them, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Judas is one of them. He sent the 12 out to preach. And then in Mark three sixteen, these are the 12 he appointed. Verse 19, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, is part of the list. Judas preached. That means Judas stood up before audiences and preached sermons. Judas preached messages about Jesus. He preached messages and invited people to come to Jesus. You say, Mark, I thought all preachers are going to heaven. Hey, preachers can pose just like anybody else. Well... And, and don't email me about this because I'll tell you right now, I don't understand it. I'll never understand it till I get to heaven. And if you stop me after the service, I'll be glad to say hello to you, but I sure don't have the answer to this one. You ready for this? Number five, God worked through him. Look at Luke 9 verse 1. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. I don't know that I want to see this on videotape when I get to heaven, but maybe it'll be there. There are going to be images of Judas healing people. No, I I don't understand it. It won't do any good to ask me. It won't do any good to ask anybody because nobody with God would know why he allowed Judas to have the power to heal people. But he did. Somebody here could say, Well, Mark, I just, I've had, God has worked through me in this most dramatic way. Well, I've been there. I've prayed with people and seen God do the impossible. I've prayed and asked God to. Heal people and they were healed. You say, well, Mark, that was just a phenomenon. No, it was impossible. I've seen things that were impossible. I've, I've touched people and prayed. I don't have a gift of healing. It's just that I, I and God doesn't always do it. But from time to time, I've seen God do things. I've seen God do things I just wouldn't even tell anybody. Because if I told people, they wouldn't believe it. Yeah, I was there. But I want to tell you something. That's not why I'm going to heaven. Because I could have done that. I could have prayed for that person. God could have done a miracle. And I could still die and go to hell. He held a church position. Judas must have had such a good upbringing that when the 12 disciples needed to vote for somebody to be treasurer in the group, Judas was voted treasurer. If Jesus and his disciples are the first church, then Judas was the first person to hold a staff position in the church. He was the first person to hold a place of leadership in a church. And that can happen today. When I was graduated from college, I went to a church in Houston, Inner City Church, and it was not a large church by New Spring standards. There were about 300 people who came out every Sunday. But I do remember I just didn't have enough to keep me busy, so I walked the streets of the inner city of Houston sharing faith with people. And There were some students from the University of Houston, young men Uh, in the church that just got excited about what I was doing and they began to just follow me around and go out with me. And so one Saturday we were doing that. We were walking the streets around the church telling people about Christ. And then we came back to the campus and just as we were collecting at the campus, one of the students, and by the way, it's really cool, almost all the students, if not all of them, are in ministry today. A lot of those guys are pastoring churches today. But a couple of them came back and said, Mark, we talked to a guy who's got cancer. He's got to have cancer surgery, and he's not sure he's going to have We think if you would go talk to him, he would accept Christ. And so from that point on, it was like everything I tried just didn't work. I went to his house immediately, but he was gone. And I found out he was going to go to MD Anderson to have surgery. So I went down to MD Anderson. But by the time I got there, they had wheeled him back to the very door. He was in surgery holding. They were about to wheel him into surgery. And I only had a few seconds to hold his hand and pray with him. And I said, when you get out of the hospital, I'll come talk to you. He had throat cancer. They were removing his voice box. So it was several days later, and I was 22, but it's one of those things that I can call back to memory like it happened five minutes ago. I can still see the kitchen where I sat down with him. He had a little table there in his kitchen where he was having breakfast. And, and by this point, as I said, his voice box was gone, and he had this a little electronic device that he would lay alongside his throat that would amplify the sounds. And I still remember trying to hear the words that he was saying and understand them. So I asked him, I said, would you like to accept Christ as Savior? And he, I asked him, first of all, if he knew he was going to heaven. He said, no. And I said, can I show you how you can have Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, absolutely. So I took out my New Testament and sat there at his breakfast table and showed him the story of Jesus, how that he died for our sins and rose from the grave, and told him, like I tell you guys every weekend, that if he prayed and invited Christ into his life, he could become a Christ follower. And I prayed with him, just like I pray with you guys every, every service, just about every weekend. And I still remember, it's just like yesterday, I can still remember as he laid that device up against his throat and I can hear the words as they came out as he invited Jesus Christ into his heart and life. And I stood up to leave. I turned my back on him to walk away when I heard him call my name. He said, Pastor Mark, I want you to know I was a deacon in the Helmer Street Baptist Church for 20 years. And yet he didn't know Christ. Well, Judas had a job in the church. But the seventh thing is the one that stands out to me the most. If we're thinking about the events of Judas' life or what he had going for him, the seventh thing is at the very top, and that is that he had the touch of Jesus on his life. He certainly had the touch of Jesus in his life in a spiritual sense, but not only that, he had Jesus' touch on his life in a physical sense. At the Last Supper, Jesus has told the disciples, one of you is going to betray me. In fact, Jesus said, the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me will betray me. In effect, Judas knows he's already sold Jesus. Jesus has announced that Judas has sold, or he said, one of you is going to betray me. Judas knows, Jesus knows. But so, ever the poser. I mean, so much wanting to be looking good before the other disciples. Judas says to Jesus, Is it me? This is in verse 25. Judas says, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus whispers, It's you. It's you. Now I want you to think about a couple things that happened at the Last Supper. Because what you're going to see at the Last Supper is you're going to see Jesus making two final attempts to reach out to Judas. You know the story, many of you. How that somebody should have volunteered to wash everybody else's feet. I am so glad we don't have that culture here at New Spring because you guys love volunteering. But nobody wanted to volunteer to wash this. Because after all, the person who washed feet, was it was like admitting I'm the least important person here. And they've been arguing who was the most important. And so what happened next is, is classic. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, Lord of the universe, the one who created everything according to John 1 cinched up his robe, got a basin of water and a towel, and went around and washed the 12 disciples' feet. But I want you to think about the moment he comes to Judas because he reaches down with his hand and picks up the feet of the man or the foot of the man who is going to betray him, takes the dirty foot of Judas and washes his feet. Now, I think I know Jesus well enough to know it was at that moment that Jesus looked up at him. This is Judas's moment. If there is anything in him, it is his moment to stop everything. And if that were not enough, it was also the custom, when there was a dinner like this, that the host would take the first piece of bread, dip it into the fruit sauce, and give it to the most cherished person in the room. Now think about this. Jesus is in a room with Peter, who will preach at Pentecost. He is in the room with John, with whom he was especially close. He was in the room with all these disciples who loved him. But who does he take the bread with the fruit sauce and give it to as the most cherished person in the room? Read with me. In John 18, verse 26, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. Well, I add it up, in case we missed anything. He had a good upbringing. He was baptized three and a half years with Jesus. He preached, God worked through him, He had a church position, and Jesus touched him, and still he walked into Jesus' enemies and sold Jesus for pocket change. I'm amazed by three things. This is as I said, this is not a sermon that I look forward to preaching, but I'm amazed by three things. Number one, I'm amazed by the patience of Jesus. Because Jesus knows who Judas is from the very beginning. If I'm Jesus, I just nuke Judas. I mean, there's just a brown spot on the ground. And yet he's so patient. I'm amazed at Jesus' patience with Judas. And I'm amazed at Jesus' patience with me. The second thing I'm amazed with, give the devil his due. I'm impressed with how well Judas pulled off the charade with the other disciples. Think about that. Three and a half years, every prayer meeting, every sermon, every worship service, Judas is there, Judas is preaching, Judas, Judas is healing people. I'm just impressed that for three and a half years, he pulled off the charade so well that when Jesus said, one of you is going to sell me, and Judas gets up from the table to leave, the other disciples say, oh, Judas must be going to handle, handle some kind of financial transaction for Jesus. Listen. Listen. When Jesus has said somebody's going to betray me, one guy gets up to leave, and you still think it's not that one guy, he has pulled off a real good charade. But I will tell you this there is something about people who pretend they get real good at it because that's how they get by in life. And Judas did. Now, of course, you know where I'm going with the third one. I'm amazed that he's unchanged. How does a person experience all these good things in life and be unchanged? Well, there are two reasons, and that's where this message gets really interesting to you and me. And we'll talk about them for a few moments, and then we'll go home. And it's important for us to talk about because we know where Judas is right now. He is one of the few people in the Bible we know he is in hell. The Bible has made it clear multiple times. Most people we don't know. We don't know what their final situation was with God. We leave that to God. But with Judas, there's no question. Right now, while you're in church, Judas is in hell. So what kept him from being changed? Well, the first thing is Judas could never, he could never have Jesus as God of his life because he already had a God. It's so, I mean, anybody can know God. We're going to talk about that next week. Anybody can have a relationship with God no matter what you've done. But here's the thing. There's one person who can't have a relationship with the true God, And that's the person who already has a God. As Augustine said, you have a God-shaped hole inside of you. And if something else fills that hole, then there's no room for God. And Judas had a God. He would have fit right in 21st century America. Judas's God was money. He loved money. Hey, that's why he signed on with Jesus in the first place. He thought the Messiah was going to be king, lead a revolution. And Judas thought he would be close to power and thus close to money. But when it was clear that Jesus Jesus wasn't going to set up a kingdom on the earth, then Judas was bailing. And that's when he went to Jesus' enemies and he said to them, you know, I want to sell him. But see, his problem had been money all along. Last week we talked about the woman who put perfume on Jesus' feet. And I want to take you back to that situation because as I shared with you last week, the first person to complain about the woman breaking the box of fragrance on Jesus was Judas. Judas objected, the Bible says. He asked, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. The Greek word is kleptis. We get a word kleptomaniac from that. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. He was stealing all along. And that's why he's he's behaving according to character. When he walks into Jesus' enemies and says, what will you give me if I sell him to you? Many of you who've known this story all your life, you you think about Judas setting the price on Jesus, 30 pieces of silver. Judas didn't set the price on Jesus. Judas set the price on Judas. That's not how much he sold Jesus for. That's what he sold himself for. He had a price, walking around money. Do you have a price? Is there something in your life that is keeping you from truly coming to Christ? This story has nothing to do with the story of Judas. It's just one of my favorite lines in the Bible. Back in the Old Testament, there was a king of Judah who hired a bunch of mercenary soldiers to help him win a war. And the prophet of God said, Hey, if you bring those mercenaries into battle, you're going to lose. God's going to see to it that you lose. And the king said, Well, what am I going to do about the $2.5 million I've paid all the mercenaries? And the, and, and the prophet said something to this king that I love and I think about it all the time. The man of God replied, look at this. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Don't you want to say that to Judas? Don't you want to say to him, hey, that money you're taking out of the bag, the Lord is able to give you so much more than that. Those 30 pieces of silver, the Lord is able to give you much more than that. Some of you are selling your soul." Because you're in a relationship with somebody who's destroying your life and will destroy your life. And you're saying, but I can't let go of him. But the Lord is able to give you so much more than that. The Lord can give you a man who will love you. You say, well, I, I've got this gal in my life. And, 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 and I know it's the wrong thing, but I just can't give her up. But the Lord is able to give you so much more than that. He's, you, you're doing something that for money that's embarrassing you and you know it's wrong and it it keeps you from truly embracing Christ. You need to know the Lord can give you so much more than that. I mean, even in a service like this where we have a time to bring our tithe and our offering, it's like, oh, I'm going to hold on to that. But the Lord is able to give you so much more than that. Judas couldn't have Jesus because he already had a God. Finally, The problem that Judas had was he wanted life on his own terms. He wants to be in control. If there's one thing you see about Judas, he wants to be in control all all, all through his life. I mean, it's so strange and bizarre. Judas is in the middle. He is at the epicenter of the greatest plan of God in history. God's plan of redemption to bring back an estranged world to himself. Judas is right there in the middle of God's biggest plan, and yet he pulls himself outside of God, God's plan and determines to take things into his own hands. You see that when he makes the deal to sell Jesus? And then you even see it later on when Judas has remorse, when Jesus is led off to be crucified. Let me read something to you, and let me ask you, those of you who study the Bible, let me ask you if you've ever seen this before. The Bible says Judas was seized with remorse and he returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. I remember my parents reading this story to me when I was a little kid and I'm thinking, well, I feel just a little better about Judas because Judas said, I have sinned. But have you ever noticed something? Isn't he at the wrong place? I mean, to go back to the chief priest and the haters of Jesus, isn't he at the wrong place? Shouldn't he be somewhere at the foot of a blood-stained cross? You know why he went back to the chief priest and and leaders of Jesus? He was going to find some way to fix this on his own. He was going to find some way to be righteous on his own. He was going to go back and try to undo it, but he failed miserably. Of course he couldn't. And they said, take your money and go. You've already made the deal. Well, you know, I've always said for human beings when we sin, there are three things we can try to do. We can try to undo it. We can try to pay for it ourselves or we can come to a merciful God and ask for forgiveness. Judas now goes to the second one. He's unwilling to do the third. He can't undo what he's done wrong and still determined to keep control. He gets a rope and ties one end of it around a tree, makes a noose with the other end, slips it around his neck And hangs himself. And as Peter tells us in the book of Acts, he even fell at that. The rope broke and his body hit the ground and broke open. What a sad story. You can see why I didn't get up this morning and think, wow, I can't wait to get to church and preach this. But I do need to say this. It didn't have to end that way. Any of you read books that have alternate endings? You ever read a book that's got a story, but then at the end, there's like several endings that you can pick? Well, life doesn't work that way, but I always imagine an alternate ending here. I see a moment where Jesus is already risen from the grave, you know. And I love the moment where he's having breakfast with his disciples on the beach. I think the beach is a great place to have breakfast, isn't it? Sun coming up, wind blowing through, you know, the waves and everything. And Jesus has fixed... Breakfast for the disciples, and I love his choice of breakfast. He's made a fish fry, he's fried fish and bread there for the disciples. And I see him there as they're, I mean, they're enjoying the moment. I mean, now Jesus has come back to life, and they're excited, and they're really beginning to get inside them the plan that God had from the very beginning. But off in the distance, I see a forlorn figure, and he's watching the crowd, but he doesn't draw close because he's done something too awful to forgive. He's Judas. Do you him? But Jesus is impossible to stay away from. And step by step, Judas begins to draw closer and closer and closer until finally he gets before the presence of Jesus. And I see him fall on his face with his face and his nose and his mouth pressed into the sand. And Judas stretches out his hands to Jesus' nail-scarred hands. And Judas says, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I don't know how I could have ever done that. What would have happened had Judas done that? I know what would have happened, and you do too. Jesus would have reached down with those nail-scarred hands, and he would have grasped the hands that held the 30 pieces of silver. And he would have forgiven Judas. And a few days later on the day of Pentecost, Judas would have been there preaching the message of Jesus On the day the church was born and thousands of people came to faith. And we would look back on him as one of the greatest comeback stories of all time. It didn't have to end that way. Judas is in hell right now. But he didn't need to be. He went there because he wouldn't break his mask. He went there because he wouldn't stop the charade. He knew the place. He knew the songs. He knew how to preach. He even saw God work in his life. But here's what he wouldn't do. He wouldn't humble himself. See, this is what posers don't understand. All posers don't get this. They say, if I humble myself, the result will be humiliation. For all of you who have humbled yourself before God, is that true? Is, when you humble yourself before God, is there humiliation? No. When you humble yourself before God, there is freedom because you have said before God, this is who I am. And at that moment, you're completely comfortable and you don't have to pretend anymore. Is there anybody here today who needs to take that mask and break it into a thousand pieces and just come before God and be who you are? And take the God of this life and pull it off the throne and say to yourself, I don't need life on my terms. Listen, why would we even think about life on our terms? I'm 57 years old and my only experience with life on my terms is I screw up anything I touch. That's a fact. The only thing about me that's ever worked is life on God's terms. Just like I prayed with that man in his kitchen that day. I want to pray with you. Because you could be here today and it's just clicked. And you say, I don't need to pretend anymore. I'm coming to Jesus. I'm coming with my flaws and my betrayals. And I'm coming to Jesus and I'm reaching out to him. Because if you do, he will forgive you. And you you will be his child. And heaven will be your eternal home. Would you pray with me, please? I'm going to pray this slowly because it's not the words. It's what you mean in your heart. I just want to pray it so you, slowly so you can own the words. Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself, and I can't undo what I've done wrong. But I'm not pretending. I'm coming just as I am. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he paid for them. I believe he arose from the grave. I receive you as my Savior, Jesus. I receive you as my Lord. Thank you for making me God's child in Jesus' name. Wow, that was lightning quick. And you can say, Mark, I'm not really sure what happened to me, so I've got something to help you with that, okay? If you just prayed, please don't leave without getting a gift. I have a gift that's got a little booklet in it that answers a lot of questions about how you can know for sure what just happened to you. And a DVD and a coupon for a new Bible. Just take your Talk To Us card. Check the box. It says, I prayed to receive Christ. Bring it back to guest services. A big one out in the lobby. A little one back by the coffee shop. Please don't leave without getting this today. Okay? So glad you guys are here. Next weekend will be the biggest sermon I've ever preached in my life. I can't <laughs> wait. We'll see you then. God bless.